welcome. Uh, this is ALL Anatomy of the Lower Limb 9 on what I've entitled Vascular and Nervous Limb Homology. I want to use the kind of re uh, reassessment of the lower limb to compare a little bit the upper and lower limbs, which I think, as I've said uh, quite a number of times in this series, is an easier way of remembering the anatomy. If there's a structure or an order to the upper limb and the lower limb, then there's less to kind of remember and, in a sense, more to understand. And I've tried to point out at various points this sort of surgical relevance, uh, particularly uh, of some of this anatomy or vascular access relevance. Now, we've covered quite a lot, I think, in the last year. It's been a little slow and deliberately a little repetitive so that principles are understood and those principles in association, as I've just said, with the homology between the upper limb and the lower limb so that learning is a little bit easier. And I hope this approach, along with the clinical surgical significance, has proven helpful. At times, anatomy is not just memory, but like language study, it's conceptual. And so this is a short overview, then, of what uh, we know, uh, what has been summarised. For a start, we, we know and we see a lot of upper and lower limb homology. The architecture, the blueprints of the limbs are similar. And that homology or equivalence is seen across many vertebrate species. The development is similar, even if, as I pointed out, the lower limb rotates 180 degrees so that the front is represented by the posterior divisions of its lumbosacral plexus. The upper limb is cutaneously innervated by its brachial plexus with a little thrown in from the second intercostal and the cervical plexus. But the lower limb, because it drags the plexus along with it, means that there's some femoral supply as far as the medial foot and some sural supply right down to the lateral foot. And so there's some agreement, but the patterns do differ. Now, we've looked at the pectoral also and pelvic girdles and shown some homology between the ilium and its musculature and compartmental nerve and the scapula, or between the coracoid and the ischium, along with its musculature, and compartmental ischiatic or sciatic nerve, and the pubis with the precoracoid and its small bunched muscles and compartmental nerve. We broadly examined the hip and shoulder, comparing and contrasting one's stability for the other's flexibility. And in any joint discussion, if asked to talk about a joint, we start with the articulating surfaces and the capsule and synovial membrane, trying to explain what keeps the joint enlocated. At least with this approach, we have something to say in an exam and will pass rather than have long periods of stunned silence. It really isn't that hard. I'm not going to go over the osteology again for that, in the upper limb, you can look at the relevant upper limb podcasts and also the one, for example, on the carpus, which I think is AUL10 posted in June of last year, or the tarsus for the lower limb, which is ALL7 posted in January of this year. 
but there's a kind of, I'm hoping you'll see, a kind of method to my madness. Now when we compare individual areas, the similarities become pretty startling. I mentioned the mechanics of the pectoral and pelvic girdles, and taking away the clavicle, there's a lot of overlap. You can imagine a kind of deltoid muscle equivalent of the hip, that is the gluteus maximus, and I guess the tensor fasciae latae. In the upper limb, we recall that there are muscles connecting the axial skeleton to the scapula and the axial skeleton to the humerus in the more complex kind of thoracoacromial articulation. It's more than just a shoulder articulation. But underneath the hip deltoid, so to speak, is the gluteus minimus and the short external hip rotators. And these are akin to the short muscles that connect the scapula to the humerus with the scapula really acting like a kind of intermediary way station. So these groups as stabilizers of each joint are then tactically very similar. What's different about the lower limb uh, is uh, the inseparability of that extra group of adductor muscles. The only sort of equivalent, and it's a stretch at that, is the coracobrachialis in the upper limb, which is directly pierced by the musculocutaneous nerve. The split in the obturator nerve around the adductor brevis might be considered some sort of equivalent there, but even that's a bit loose. What the adductors do, however, apart from adducting, as the coracobrachialis does in the upper limb, um, is to assist the stance hamstrings, even though they're not true hamstring muscles, that is muscles that span both the hip and the knee. But the arrangement goes some way to explaining why there's a double nerve supply to the pectineus, if we keep in mind that the obturator nerve has migrated from its anterior division takeoff. The complexity of this mixed nerve also explains that so-called Hauschip-Romberg sign, where an obstructed obturator hernia results in medial knee pain. And that, I can assure you, is very real in clinical practice. And yet another example of how anatomy comes alive in the clinic. If we know it and we understand it, we look for it in the clinic and in diagnosis. And that's where anatomy does come to life. If it isn't taught like this, it's just another useless fact to remember. The adductor function of the upper limb is, however, left to powerful muscles that show that they're embryologically derived from the brachial plexus, but they're the pectoralis major, which is innervated by all the brachial plexus components through the medial and lateral pectoral nerves, and the latissimus dorsi, which is innervated, not surprisingly, by the posterior brachial plexus divisions. Now, this is, of course, the difference, too, between the adductor muscles, which are innervated by the musculocutaneous and obturator nerves in the upper limb and the lower limb, respectively. They're both anterior divisions of their respective plexi. And, of course, this is the formation of the walls of the axilla. If we move down a bit, the thigh has a profunda blood supply, and there's some homology with the profunda brachii vessel. But for those who've ever operated on an upper limb arterial injury, not much. The nerves differ here in part because of that rotation that I've already mentioned. And the muscular derivation embryologically differs as well. The quads are really ripped off the trunk 
and because of their rotation, they're higher in their lumbar plexus origins and their posterior divisions. These nerves, not surprisingly, also supply muscles that are higher up in the iliac fossa, such as the, the iliacus. And we naturally have trouble equating the femoral and the obturator arising from the same segmental levels, but one anterior and the other posterior, with anything really in the brachial plexus. My aim here is to try and see where there are areas of homology, and I'm drawing together the neurology and the angiology, if you want to call it that, so that if any of these elements are a little bit unclear, you've got to, I would suggest, go back to the relevant podcast, have a listen to bits of those again to try and figure out what we're talking about, because I'm summarising it here. When our attention turns to the leg and the forearm, like everything in life, we can see some similar patterns and some glaring differences. In the leg and the forearm, we've of course spoken about the preaxial and postaxial bone structure. The homology here is really muscular. The three thumb extensors inserting into the base of the metacarpal, the proximal and the distal phalanx, namely the abductor pollicis longus, the extensor pollicis brevis, and the extensor pollicis longus, are like those of the great toe inserting into the same parts, the metatarsal, proximal and distal phalanx. And so they then have the equivalent of the tibialis anterior, that's similar to the abductor pollicis longus, the extensor haliusus brevis, which is similar to the extensor pollicis brevis, and the extensor haliusus longus, which is similar to the extensor pollicis longus. I appreciate here the analogy kind of stops and there are no real counterparts, for example, to the radial extensors of the upper limb, the extensor carpi radialis longus and the extensor carpi radialis, or to the alternate-sided extensor carpi ulnaris. And if we look at the balance of the wrist, there's no real equivalent radial or ulnar foot deviation. So that's why that's the case, whereas those are muscles which are important in radial deviation of the wrist and in medial deviation or ulnar deviation of the wrist. The mechanism of dorsiflexion and plantar flexion, which I've pretty extensively gone through throughout the podcasts, is of course different and far more hinge-like in the foot. On the flexor side, the principal similarity is between, now we're talking about flexor musculature now in the forearm, between the flexor digitorum superficialis and the interrupted soleus, which continues in the foot as the flexor digitorum brevis. The neurovascular approaches here between the upper limb and the lower limb or between the hand and the foot have some similarity in trauma exposure, for example. The median nerve and the ulnar artery run under the arch of the flexor digitorum superficialis in the forearm and the posterior tibial vessels run under the soleal arch. So that's pretty similar. The anterior tibial artery is approachable directly under the tibialis anterior, as I recounted when I was talking about a discussion of the baloney amputation. If you want to reassess that area, you can see that in ALL6 on the anatomy of the leg. Now, we've also been through the tarsus and the carpus nexus, if you want to call it that. The proximal and distal rows are similar. They're separated by a central bone, which some books call the os centrale. And for that area, again, I'd refer you to the podcasts on the tarsus and the carpus, as I won't go through this again, except to say that this explains the formation in parts which has 
clinical significance for the scaphoid and its fractures, and even for the unusual fractures of the posterior process of the talus, where the os intermediale, which forms the lunate, forms the medial tubercle of the talar posterior process. So that posterior process of the talus fracture is actually fairly uncommon, um, and, uh, and that one on the medial side is called a sedel, C-E-D-E-L fracture. That on the lateral side is called a um, shepherd fracture. Uh, but the thing about that is that that's an important fracture since uh, it can have very poor function with quite a lot of posterior ankle impingement, uh, risk of non-union and also posterior ankle um, osteoarthritis, which may require an arthrodesis if it's not fixed very early and it requires a suspicion to use very special oblique X-ray views for the diagnosis as up to 40% of straight x-rays in that unusual posterior fracture of the, uh, or the fracture of the posterior process of the talus in which conventional x-rays are often negative. So this requires a little understanding of the anatomy, a little appreciation uh, of the fact that you need specialised views in radiology and uh, often a CT there or an MRI, depending on what you have, and that may require early fixation because it has a poor outcome if it's managed conservatively. And my point here is that even an embryological appreciation in this case assists in your clinical examination and in an appreciation of the radiology. I, I, I think I'm going to do a series, if I can, on the embryology, but that's not going to be at least probably until the middle or end of next year. In comparisons of the foot and the hand, the big difference is, of course, opposition. You don't have opposition of the great toe. But the stability of the foot is such that the metatarsal axis has also shifted medially by one digit. And there's, of course, a striking muscular tenderness and neurovascular homology in the upper limb and lower limb. Just take a look at the tendon insertions the vinculi, the extensor expansions, the lumbricals, the interossei, as well as the thenar and hypothenar and mid-palmar spaces, similar spaces in the foot and on the four-layer arrangement in levels that I've spent some time describing. The palmar and plantar ponderosus, the short intrinsics of the first and the fifth digit, the long flexors, the adductor, and then the interossei, it all looks pretty familiar, and if you understand it in the hand, you pretty well understand it in the foot. Learn one, and learning the other like this is much easier. The cutaneous structural nerves, the common and proper digitals, are very, very similar indeed, with some minor differences that we've outlined for dorsal cutaneous nerve supply, and the motor arrangement is very similar, with the caveat that the medial plantar nerve is often to the first lumbrical only, and the superficial branch of the lateral plantar nerve has some muscular components to the abductor digiti minimi, to the flexor digiti minimi brevis, to the interossei of the fourth digital space, the third plantar and the fourth dorsal. If you want to go through all of these areas, again, you can go through the palm where I mentioned this, or through the sole where I mentioned it in the last or couple of weeks or so ago. The vascular arches, we remember, are different. There's two in the hand or palm and one in the sole. 
and they're all far more proximally located than you think. That's relevant in trauma. You're not looking in the middle of the palm. You're looking more around the distal part of the wrist. And the same goes for the foot. It's more proximal than you think it is. The superficial palmar one is, of course, made by the ulnar artery, which often is, or can be, incomplete. The deep one is the deep part of that radial artery. That's the one that becomes the arterial radialis indicis and the arterial princeps pollicis. In the foot, the dominant one is variable, but it's often dominated by the lateral plantar artery and is supplemented laterally by a perforating branch of the perineal artery, which supports the arcuate artery, part of the dorsalis pedis, and at the first digital web space is medially supported by the dorsalis pedis artery termination. So do you see how easy this is if you remember it that way? So we're pretty much done here. This is a much shorter, um, just recap um, podcast. Um, the short summary, I suppose, we've done, except for the fact that we can recap also the muscles that act on the shoulder girdle. I want to remind people about that. And those muscles are the thoracoscapular muscles, in effect, those running from the axial skeleton to the scapula. And they include the trapezius, the serratus anterior, the pectoralis minor, the rhomboids major and minor, the levator scapulae, and that little subclavius muscle, if we're including the axial skeleton, we're including the clavicle there. And then we've got a group of thoracohumeral muscles running really from the axial skeleton to the humerus. That's the way it's structured. And that's the pectoralis major and latissimus dorsi. And the movements occurring here between the shoulder girdle and the trunk are really depression, elevation, protraction, retraction of the scapula and arm and combined sort of circumduction or rotation. The muscles passing from the shoulder girdle or the scapula to the humerus include the deltoid, the long and short heads of biceps brachii, the coracobrachialis, the teres major, and of course the four short scapular rotator cuff muscles, subscapularis, supraspinatus, infraspinatus and teres minor. And we also have the long head of triceps and all of this flexes, extends, abducts, adducts and circumducts the arm but also it medially and laterally rotates. And to remind yourself, you can listen to that relevant shoulder podcast at AUL5. Continuing in the upper limb, the muscles acting on the elbow joint, of course, are the biceps brachii, the brachioradialis, the triceps, the anconeus, the extensor carpi radialis longus, the pronator teres, and the flexor carpi radialis with the muscles functioning really on the radioulnar joints being the pronators, the teres and quadratus, the flexor carpi radialis, the biceps and the brachioradialis. Um, and I guess one could include also the supinator here. Um, the flexor carpi radialis, the extensor carpi radialis longus and brevis, the extensor digitorum, the extensor carpi ulnaris, the extensor uh, digiti minimi, the extensor pollicis longus, the extensor indices, and then on the flexor side, the deep flexors, the flexor digitorum profundus, the flexor digitorum superficialis, and the flexor pollicis longus 
in essence, everything in the way it's been described before, basically everything acts on the wrist, given it's crowding, but just run across your own wrist and try to orientate what's going on there from radial to ulna on the flexor side and then on the extensor side. An old question is, of course, the order of the extensor tendons at the wrist, and you might be shown that in a viva. My old boss, Ken Russell, in Melbourne in Australia, a really great historian of anatomy in, in, in Melbourne, in Australia, very gruff man, but very bright, used to show windows of the cut wrist upside down in vivas. And his point was to pick out those who'd actually dissected and could tell the tendon of a flexor carpi radialis from that rather fleshy flexor pollicis longus muscle and tendon. It was pretty easy once you figured out the guy's tricks. Now, when you look at the lower limb, the same approach can be used, and there are muscles acting on the hip joint only, like the adductors longus brevis magnus, the psoas, or perhaps the iliopsoas, the pectineus, the glutei maximus minimus and medius, and then the short external rotators of the hip, which includes the piriformis, the obturator externus, the obturator internus, those little superior and inferior gemelli, and the quadratus femoris. The muscles acting on the hip and the knee, as I said before, are the true hamstrings, the long head of the biceps femoris, the semimembranosus, and the semitendinosus. And then those three medial muscles, the gracilis, the sartorius, and the semitendinosus, which represent really the embryological guy ropes of the femoral obturator and sciatic nerves. And then laterally, you've got the tensor fasciae latae, the superficial bit of the gluteus maximus and the rectus femoris. So the hip movements, too, are really flexion, extension, adduction, abduction, medial and lateral rotation, which then gives you a circumductive movement. At the knee, of course, we've got the vastus medianus, the vastus intermedius, and the vastus lateralis. The short head of the biceps femoris comes in, and the rectus femoris as well as the popliteus, if you think about it. The plantaris and the gastrox, the gastrocnemii, operate on the knee and the ankle. The soleus solely on the ankle. And then you've got the... Um, um, Perineus longus, the perineus brevis, the tibialis anterior, the tibialis posterior, the perineus tertius. All those guys act on the ankle and the tarsal joints. And then acting strictly on the ankle, tarsal joints and the toes, are then the extensor haliusus longus, the extensor digitorum longus, and on the other side, the flexor haliusus longus and the flexor digitorum longus. So it's easier to remember to think of those long flexors as haliusus and digitorum, and that's a bit easier. Once more, and we've been through this a few times, but it's always good to reinforce it, inversion of the tarsal joints, and particularly the talocalcaneonavicular, or so-called subtalar joint, which I did discuss in midfoot amputations, acting on inversion there is the tibialis anterior, the extensor haliusus longus, and the tibialis posterior. Eversion, on the other hand, is on the lateral side by the peroneus longus, the peroneus brevis, the peroneus tertius, and I guess the lateral part of extensor digitorum brevis. 
the muscles acting on the tarsal joints and the toes are then, as we've said before, on the extensor side, the extensor digitorum brevis. On the flexor side, the flexor digitorum brevis. But also we can include the abductor haliosis on one side and the ab abductor digiti minimi on the other side. More distally, of course, the muscles act on the toes only. Now, in going through all of this, it's worthwhile listening to this part of the podcast, I think, a few times in order to orientate yourself. There's a lot of data that I've included here, rushed over it in a way, but it does explain the actions of individual muscles and tendons on the leg or on the foot or on the toes, and that's another way of understanding it, and they move from medial to lateral, so in the toes, as we said, or, or really in the tarsus, it's extensor digitorum brevis on one side, flexor digitorum brevis on the other side, supplemented on the medial side by abductor haliosis, supplemented on the lateral side by abductor digiti minimi. So that kind of makes architectural sense uh, in that way. And it allows you to orientate yourself. You're merely progressively moving down the leg and looking at the medial and then the lateral side. Um, okay, so that's really a quick podcast recap. Um, the next one is uh, a lower limb quiz. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. Thank you.